This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Chronicles Magazine podcast. We are back here with Paul Gottfried, and it's always a joy to talk to Paul. We haven't talked in a while, and lots of things have happened since then. We're going to talk today about what's going on in Texas. We'll talk about some current events, especially related to the border, DeSantis dropping out, the GOP primaries. Um, We're going to cover one of his recent essays for Chronicles Magazine on the meaning of conservatism. And then finally, he has a piece written, uh, published this morning on the civil rights movement, and it's called the realities of race. So let's start with um, current events. Paul, the last time we talked, you were um, gunning for DeSantis. He has since dropped out. So what's your what's your make of what's happening in the GOP primaries? And of course, are you going to be voting for Trump? What is happening? And I, I'm you know I'm just writing a column for the Blaze on this, and pointing out that uh, Nikki Haley and her donors um, have the wrong message. Uh, that's one of their problems, and it also explains why they're so dependent on Democratic crossovers and undeclared, so-called undeclared, who are really Democrats, uh, you know, as well as their boosters in National Review and Wall Street Journal. Um, they, uh, they, they want to return to normalcy. Uh, they pretty much like the status quo if they can get rid of the problems on the southern border, uh, provide some tax breaks, corporate tax breaks. Um, and then beef up the military so that we can stand tall against the dictators whom Donald Trump is befriending. The problem with this is that the uh, the people who are the Republican voters, if we can judge by their responses in New Hampshire primary, are very, very angry at the government. They want total change. They do not want to return to normalcy. And when Nikki Haley says voting for Trump will give us chaos, the, the Republican voters are delighted with chaos. Right. <laughs> I mean, they want to disrupt everything. <laughs> so she has exactly, I mean, you know, we're not living in uh, 1956 when Eisenhower was running for a second term or something. So, I mean, her, her, her message is absolutely uh, jars with what the, the um, majority of Republicans seem to want right now. Mm-hmm. And so, are, I mean, so what, what's your take of DeSantis dropping out? And, um, you know, obviously Trump's going to take the, the nomination for the Republicans. Do you think he has a chance of beating Biden? Yeah, I, I, I am not sure that, you know, DeSantis would have been better against Biden. Um, personally, I prefer DeSantis. He's more articulate. He's more coherent. Um, with Trump, I mean, you, you're going to get uh, simply uh, rants about uh, personal grievances, complaints about his, his rivals, insults, his, uh, vulgar insults, and so forth. Um, uh, I thought DeSantis was much was much better ordered, um, much more methodical in the way he addressed political issues. But he obviously had no appeal uh, to the voters um, who resonate to Trump's rants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was more uh, I say the wrong, the wrong political leader. Uh, at, at this particular historical juncture. Um, I think if he were elected, he probably would have given the voters 
more of what they wanted than Donald Trump is likely to give them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, his the way the way he presented himself, the kind of ra- the, uh, the the lack one might say of rhetorical flair, um, uh, and uh, his failure to really uh, stir up the base, um, I think cost him uh, uh, cost him the nomination. Uh, if he wants to run in the future, um, he's going to have to organize himself much better. Uh, he's going to have to find better consultants, and he's going to have to find learn you know find some way that he can connect with the electoral his electoral base, mm-hmm. uh, which he obviously did not do this time. You know, one of the things that I noticed is that when he was being pressured on the COVID issues and he was um, acting in a much more confrontational way against the media, I think he he gained a lot of popularity that he just he wasn't able to act confrontational. He kind of seemed um, disinterested um, on the campaign trail. Yeah, I, I think this may have been done deliberately, not only, you know, to neutralize the media, but to contrast his style to the um, uh, the. Uh, the more tumultuous uh, kind of rhetoric that uh, that is identified with Trump. And, you know, he's he's the thinking man's candidate. He's going to present, you know, the same populist positions more coherently and, you know, with some kind of statistical basis than you're likely to get in Trump. And uh, it just didn't work this year. All right, let's roll over now to, to, to what's happening in Texas. I mean, obviously, this seems like it could crack up into something mm-hmm. bigger. Um, I mean, what do you make of it so far? Obviously, you side with Texas. It's long overdue. This has been a problem for decades. Um, I guess the first question would be, uh, you know, why now? What is happening? And do you think that Abbott has put the Biden administration in a really difficult political situation? Yeah, what surprised me about this is the, uh, the unanimity of support Mm-hmm. That uh, Abbott has been able to elicit from uh, from Republican politicians, uh, twenty two Republican governors supported him. Uh, they offered to send uh, uh, said what did the uh, uh, in uh, South Car- uh, Dakota offered to send him uh, special shears, which he could uh, or, or other things he could use in creating more 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 wire. Uh, barbed wire to keep out the illegals. Uh, Trump, of course, urged that um, uh, that every state send in its National Guard. And surprisingly, surprisingly, Nikki Haley came out in support uh, of Governor Abbott, which shows how desperate she is for votes right now. Right. Uh, because obviously, the people who are backing her uh, are not on the side. They, you know, Governor Abbott, they're more the kinds of the types of people what we're happier with uh, McConnell or um, uh, Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. but uh, Mitt Romney has not. Mitt Romney has, uh, you know, has held back uh, any kind of support from Abbott. But the support has been so enormous, um, even even though the uh, two supposedly conservative justices on the Supreme Court, uh, whom they expected to support Abbott, voted against him. But um, uh, any uh, any loss. Uh, that occurred because of that uh, defection of the two concern has has been more than compensated for by the um, the, uh, the the absolutely uh, resounding support that has uh, that has come to Abbott from these uh, from just about all these Republican and of course the the most of the member the Republican members of the House of Representatives starting with Mike Johnson you know have been behind him. 
Right. So do, how far do you think this will go? I mean, who do you think is going to fold first here? Um, I, I think Abbott is going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be like the Civil War in 1861. Right. <laughs> it's not going to go that far. But I, I, th- I, think, I think Abbott is going to win because Biden has no credibility as, you know, uh, on the border issue. He has absolutely none. Um, out, outside of diehard Democrats, you know, and the uh, MSNBC or, you know, these, these, uh, uh, these fanatical uh, lefties who are supporting him. But uh, his credibility on, among the general public is very, very low. And uh, he, can, he cannot afford uh, to be seen as somebody who is facilitating the entry into the country of, uh, of more illegals. Um, I, I think I think he's he's, he's going to suffer a, a resounding defeat. I think he's going to probably find some way to get out of this, or some kind of compromise will be arranged by his handlers. Mm-hmm. But he's I, I think it's going to weaken his position. Yeah, um, I mean, standing him down in election year is really bad for his prospects. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, he's not going to. Well, the <clears throat> the other thing is, I think this may um, weaken the hand of Schumer and the other Democrats and some of their Republican allies like Langford and, and Mitt Romney who are trying to broker a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it's it's a fake deal with Biden because he has the power to stop everything if he wants. What he's trying to do is simply to bring in more illegals, but do it as part of a of a settlement or a deal that he can point to uh, right. in November or, or, you know, when he campaigns for re-election or when his handlers would campaign for him for re-election. But uh, I think I think he's, he's weakened his hand there as well because he looks very bad right now. He uh, and his party look very bad in the, uh, the situation along the Texas border. <clears throat> yeah, so it's, it is interesting. You, know, you probably didn't see it yet, but just a few minutes ago, I saw him talking with Tucker Carlson about this. And Tucker asked him, you know, to what extent is he willing you know, to, to, to stay? I mean, because people have been talking about whether the National mm-hmm. Guard will be federalized in order to stop this. Right. And, and Abbott said, you know, he's you know, he's putting a lot more state resources and, um, you know, county resources, more local resources on the border. And other states are participating with, um, you know, resources outside of federal jurisdiction. And he said that, that Biden has no chance at, at winning the standoff. Right, right. You know, I, I, I don't think Biden, Biden is going to come out ahead in this at all. <clears throat> um, and, you know, a- Abbott probably has the majority, at least of white voters, in the state of Texas behind him. Mm-hmm. Although I, I, you know, I, the, the blacks are like uh, uh, <clears throat> almost sort of instinctive Democrats, but uh, they certainly do not like their cities being taken over by the illegals who are coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I, I don't think what, what one's what one is going to hear too many protests from them. Their politicians will probably make uh, you know sort of perfunctory ritualistic defenses of Biden because you know they uh, they're uh, such fanatical dem- Democratic partisans, but um, uh, the Republicans are not going to lose any black voters because of this um, uh, in Houston or Dallas or anywhere else. Do you think there's any political prospects to reverse things? I mean, the immigration problem has been here for, for decades now. Um, do you think things are start- finally starting to shift? Do you think this is sort of do you think this issue has long long term stay and will the Republican Party be able to make this 
um, to turn this around at all? Because they've been totally weak on the issue since Reagan. Uh, where has the Republican Party? I didn't catch all of it. Well, I'm curious if you think the Republican Party is actually going to finally do something about the immigration party. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think they will. <clears throat> I mean, if Trump becomes president, uh, they will the same way that uh, uh, Trump did when, you know, in his first term. They're simply going to go back to that. Um, there, there may be some people, you know, in the Senate who want to cut a deal, uh, uh, find common ground with the Democrats. Uh, but I, I, I think they may have problems getting reelected. <clears throat> particularly if you come from a state like Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I mean, Whiteford is, is not going to come out of this looking very good, uh, trying to cut a deal with the Democrats, which will do nothing very effective in reducing the influx of illegals. They're still going to continue to come in. Right. <clears throat> Although they're going to get more people at the border, or they're going to ask them a few more questions. But there, there still is a certain number of illegals who be allowed to come in every week. Right. Um, and, you know, it is obvious that Biden has the same executive power that Donald Trump did to uh, to address the situation. He can make it go away, like, you know, in 24 hours if he wants to. But he wants to bring more of these illegals in so they can register them as Democratic voters. I mean, it's obvious what the end game is. Mm -hmm. um, and the Republicans should, uh, you know, should not play any role uh, in advancing uh, Biden's agenda, uh, and I don't, I don't think um, Republicans who are running in red states are going to do very well um, if they if they try to give Biden what he wants. Um, I, I think I think McConnell is behaving very foolishly, mm -hmm. and what he's doing will confirm what many Republicans already believe that you know he basically is a sellout to the other party. Um, and, you know, he is the ultimate rhino and you don't want him in that. And he's also pretty old. You don't want him in that position anymore. <clears throat> Whoever replaces him uh, will, will be a much harder adversary for the Democrats. Yeah, it's interesting because in the conservative wars in the 1990s, um, you know, the hard right anti-immigration faction was basically kicked out of conservative incorporated on the immigration issue. I mean, so so a lot of this isn't just Democrat doing. The Republicans have, uh, share, uh, you know, a big portion of the blame mm -hmm. here. That's right. I mean, the the, the Republicans uh, were representing the interests of big business and large, you know, which wanted cheap labor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then you also you saw the socially liberal Republicans like the Bush family. You know, right. This and you cannot rule out the influence of neoconservatives who are. Uh, immigration expansionists you know um always yeah and they had and they took over conservative publications and foundations in the 1980s mm -hmm. so I, I think all of these factors worked toward weakening republican opposition to uh to massive immigration yeah <clears throat> we also have reagan who in, in his second term what um uh issued an amnesty uh to to illegals who were here yeah, I mean, he, he cut a deal. I mean, this this is a big lesson in politics is he cut a deal with the Democrats right. um, to do that. And then they re reneged on it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, you can't you can't play those games um, when you know, your entire political culture is at stake. Yeah. And, and remember, in the late 1980s, you had both the neoconservatives and the big business interest working toward making that deal. And they, they were in favor of that deal. Right. Uh, um, I don't think that these forces weigh very heavily 
anymore, and uh, certainly not in the populist wing of the Republican Party, which seems to be the dominant one. Mm-hmm. I mean, state pushback has been something that people are talking about now. I mean, people are people were urging Abbott to, you know, online they were urging Abbott to take the Andrew Jackson option, right? The Supreme Court, the, the Chief Justice has made his decision and let him enforce it. Um, I think this type of pushback is healthy. DeSantis mm-hmm. kind of paved the way on the COVID issue and now Abbott on the immigration issue. Do you think that this is going to be a key avenue of conservatives in the future is oh, state level pushback? It is right now. It's a number one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a- Abbott seemed to waver on all kinds of other things, social issues and conservatives were angry at him and so forth. Uh, I think he's restored his, his conservative credibility uh, through the position that he's taking on, on immigration. And, you know, the um, uh, the uh, the efforts, conspicuous efforts to keep illegals from entering from entering the uh, country. The Texans also have something like 825 miles of border with the Mexican that, mm-hmm. that, that, that with Mexico. That's, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of border to defend. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't I don't know if you're familiar with the statistics on this stuff, but did you know just in the Biden administration alone, there's been 20 over 20 million illegal immigration. That's that's 20 times the population of Wyoming that have flooded into our country in three years. I mean, that's insane. That's the definition of an invasion. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is obviously the definition of, of an invasion, but. Half the people, you know, up until recently, knew not very little about it because the the mass media have hidden it very well. Mm-hmm. They, they treat it as an as a minor story. Well, we have uh, CBS, NBC, ABC affiliates where I live, and uh, just about the only news is you know tr- the trials of Donald Trump uh, and various people who think he's going to create a dictatorship, mm-hmm. um, and then they give you some local news. And you're told there is a little trouble at the border, but you know we really don't have to worry about this. It's being uh, uh, it's being amplified or exaggerated by the Republican Party. And th- 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 this this is this is the way the issue has been presented up until recently. And now it now it, it the uh, the border invasion has become so obvious, and the cities here are being um, uh, overrun by the invaders. That mm-hmm. they have to tell you something is happening. Right. Um, they still try to blame it on Trump. They, they tell you something is happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just interesting. I mean, this seems like a big deal, but any search of like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, there's barely any mention of what's happening here. Yeah. the The Wall Street Journal does tell you that it's a problem. The New York Times is the uh, what, what I find interesting about the Wall Street Journal. It is both the source <clears throat> of valuable information. Uh, thanks to people like uh, Kim Strassel and some of the others who are writing for them, um, <coughs> con- uh, concerning the corruption in the Biden family. You learn everything about that you know, looking at, the New York, uh, at, at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, both of which are strongly for Nikki Haley mm-hmm. and pr- generally pro-immigration. Mm-hmm. Although I noticed the New York Post, is the, the editors are ticked off with, how many of the illegals are coming into New York City right now? Because they're being affected by it. Yeah, right. When it when it comes into their backyard, suddenly it's a problem. They don't like it anymore. No. Right. Exactly. So let, let's shift gears here. You wrote a piece um, that was published this morning on American Mind, and it looks like it was a response to Hansen. 
um, this there's this in, eternal debate in the conservative movement about you know the the true meaning of the civil rights movement and whether there's this ideal movement that kind of fell by the wayside or whether it was always this attempt to subvert the American tradition. So talk a little bit about your piece and why you wrote it. Yeah. Um, I, I came across something on the, you know, the collapse of American culture, uh, written by Victor Davis Hanson. I, and, um, I, I reacted very strongly to a statement about, you know, 20 years ago, there was racial harmony, intermarriage of where things were going very nicely. And then suddenly everything went bad. You know, as I said, suddenly we all fell off a cliff. Um, and I think this is very typical of the way the conservative establishment, particularly neoconservatives, people uh, who share the background from which Hanson comes, although I think now he's very clearly on the populist right, but it's the way they see um, contemporary history, <clears throat> that um, every the civil rights movement was great. Um, and it did all these things. And then it should have, you know, things have, it should have gone away, uh, all these problems. And if we, they didn't because there were some troublemakers out there and uh, people who tried to take the principles of the civil rights movement as represented by Martin Luther King and extend them to groups like uh, lesbians, uh, transgendered, uh, or whatever <clears throat> these, you know, these, these sexual revolutionaries, um, or push the feminist movement too far. And uh, I, I say this, you know, th this is like people... Uh, when, I, when I was a European historian, people who would argue that the French Revolution was great until, I don't know, until the Girondins lost to the uh, Jacobins when the Jacobins took over, or, or what, <coughs> when something else happened late, uh, you know, before September of 1792, when the Paris mobs went wild and began sacking <coughs> convents and monasteries and so forth. My argument is <coughs> the uh, is is that we're dealing with an incremental revolution. Mm -hmm. Once it started, it was not going to stop. And what we see now <coughs> is the consequences <coughs> of the therapeutic administrative state controlling social relations <coughs> and uh, <coughs> going well beyond where the one might say the, the early, some of the early civil rights people wanted it to end. It just wasn't going to end there. Right. And soon after the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed, <coughs> we already have affirmative action programs. Um, these things come very early. Mm -hmm. they, they were pushed about 16 months after the, the uh, Civil Rights uh, Act was passed. And you also create a very large bureaucracy which become the anti-discrimination regime. And it's there in the 1960s. It simply continues to grow. And <clears throat> it will uh, <clears throat> become the champion of different different victim groups. You know, it, was, it will expand its reach um, in the ensuing 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. So I, I've never really bought the uh, this argument that it was good at one time, then it became bad. Well, then Martin Luther King just wanted a colorblind society. No, he did not. He called for quotas for blacks. He said all kinds of nasty things about white America. Uh, he also told us, you know, that if we didn't follow his advice, there'd be riots in the street. Um, so, you know, the, the, the attempt to reduce Martin Luther King 
you know, to one or two sentences in the I Have a Dream speech given on the Washington Mall in 1963 is simply dishonest. I do concede that his letter from a Birmingham jail was an authentically Christian letter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people always point to that, and he's writing as he's writing there as a Christian. Um, you, you can, but I, I think there's ver- there's there's a great deal else in his in his political career uh, that suggests that he was not exactly a conservative Christian or a political conservative. He was quite far on the left, um, and did try to push the civil rights movement in a, in a leftist direction. Uh, but he was overtaken by people who were even more radical. Mm-hmm. So what uh, the uh, the other side of my argument is that the major problems uh, faced by blacks was not going to be addressed. They, they were not going to be addressed by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There were social problems. They were living in a collapsing society. Um, they uh, uh, the, the the shift of blacks from the rural South into cities, particularly northern cities, um, resulted in social disintegration. Uh, a disf- social dysfunctionality, uh, drugs came in, created more problems, there were riots and so forth. These were not going to be solved by creating a larger department of anti-discrimination uh, administrators or anything like that. Th- these were social problems that had to be addressed as such, largely by the black community. Mm-hmm. They do, <clears throat> obviously, because their community fell apart. Um, this, this, I mean, you cite Thomas Sowell on this issue. I mean, a, a lot. He's one of the classic, you know, um, voices of those who recognize that this wasn't, you know, the, this was the black community needing to address things within their own culture. Yeah. No, the, uh, there, there, was, there was a famous uh, observation made by Thomas Sowell, who's a black sociologist, saying that from 1940 to 1960, blacks achieved greater socioeconomic success they did after the civil rights movement began right we see a period of socioeconomic collapse among except for black elites mm-hmm. right who become absorbed into the white liberal ruling class right <clears throat> giving cushy jobs at harvard and elsewhere you know like uh, what's her name claudine gay and people of her of that ilk uh <clears throat> who of course um make careers out of playing on so-called civil rights issues, which mean racial grievances, these people do extremely well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was, by the way, certainly progress among blacks before the civil rights movement. <clears throat> and even without all that legislation being passed, you know, if, the, if they had been able to remain socially cohesive, if they remained under the influence of Christian pastors and so forth, they would have done very well. Right. I mean, they would have made advances um, in the ensuing, you know, 20 years. Uh, the civil rights movement in most ways, I think, was a, um, uh, you know, a um, uh, an unfortunate diversion from things that had to be done to address social problems. And it, it, tur- it turned the major, major issues for blacks into political issues. They were social issues. Right. Um, and those... Uh, uh, they were not addressed, and the social the social situation became worse and worse, worse and worse down to the present time. The other thing I found interesting about Hanson is he talked about intermarriage. Well, there's more intermarriage now between whites and blacks than there was 20 years ago, and race relations have never been worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, so <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any correlation there. 
Yeah. Do you? Th I mean, do you think the civil rights movement was a product of the managerial revolution, uh, the managerial state? It became that very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was taken was... over, and even friends of mine who were Marxists saw this happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, sim it simply became another instrument for expanding managerial power. I mean, th this is an important point because it it <laughs> um, it pertains to your uh, earlier point that um, that the woke left is kind of a product of liberalism and not Marxism. Right, right. Well, what liberalism became. Right. I mean, I'm not blaming this on uh, Montesquieu or uh, David Hume or people like that. Sure, sure. Obviously, sure. It's, it's, what, it's what liberal or the founders of the con uh, constitution or constitutional government, uh, it's what liberalism became certainly in the 20th century. I mean, right. they're, they're a direct offshoot. Right. None of this, none of this stuff is a result of, of a traditional Marxists. No, it's nothing to do with traditional Marxism, whatever. Um, and nor does it have much to do with, you know, tr a traditional bourgeois liberalism. It is what liberalism became, we might say the second or third or fourth version of liberalism, um, because it kept changing in the 20th century, it became more and more socially radical, right. uh, or culturally radical. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always amused when I read, um, these uh, people like Barry Weiss and uh, Douglas Murray want to sort of go back to the liberalism that existed just before the collapse occurred. You know? <laughs> That's going to save us. That has become the conservative position now. Right? Right. We have right. to return to the way things were 20 years ago. Return to the way they were 20 years ago, and 20 years from now, <laughs> from then, they'll then we'll have the same problems again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, people like Victor Davis Hanson, they can't see that you know the the BLM protests, the burning down the cities, the riots. They're kind of downstream from the same stock that that um, of all the racial animus in the '60s. Yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're very much related, mm -hmm. and I think in many ways they're they're a repetition of what happened because you have an alliance of inner city blacks, right, and their racialist leaders who are now perfectly respectable and they become presidents of Ivy League universities or Stanford mm -hmm. or places like that. <clears throat> These people um, are in alliance with, with white leftists, white right. cultural leftists, and, you know, with uh, much of the media. This is what happened in the 19th. It's just, just the recurrence of the same thing mm -hmm. that we're witnessing. <clears throat> Let me shift gears here because the, the the thing that I really wanted to talk about was your three conceptions of conservatism. Um, I, you know, I thought this was a classic essay. Um, you know, just just trying to grapple with the meaning of conservatism, the way it's been employed um, over the last several decades, and the way it's been employed over the centuries. Um, so, you kind of rely on Sam Huntington's uh, division, and you talk about you know three of them are you know, aristocratic conservatism. You could call the other one principles-based conservatism, and the last one situational conservatism. So, um, t talk a little bit about, I, I guess, because when you think of conservative incorporated, right, in the '80s and '90s, you're right. talking about principles conservatism, um, which is not original Burkeanism. Can you kind of, un you know, unwind that? Well, uh, the uh, the Huntington essay, which I think is a classic, <clears throat> I think it's one of the best things written on, on conservatism, even though I disagree with his mm -hmm. conclusions. <clears throat> but I think right, there are three different types of conservatism. And what I argue in my essay is that there's a place for all of them in a real conservative tradition. Um, <clears throat> the first is aristocratic conservatism, by which he means the type of conservatism that develops as a reaction to the French Revolution. 
mm-hmm. right, as represented by Burke, Joseph de Mest, uh, uh, Louis de Bonal, uh, and a number of German writers <clears throat> who are counter-revolutionaries <clears throat> at the time, like Albrecht von Halle, um, later on uh, Friedrich Stahl, there are lots of these, lots of these very good German counter-revolutionary writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some Italians, <clears throat> there are even Russian ones. Um, <clears throat> and their argument was basically a defense um, of an ordered hierarchical society um, not necessarily the one that had existed just before the revolution, because they recognized <clears throat> that that society was in some ways decadent and that had brought on the revolution. <clears throat> but what they end up doing <clears throat> is creating a, cons- a, a conservative ideology, although I use the word ideology advisedly, because I think ideology is generally identified with the left. But I, I think the uh, Hungarian German sociologist Karl Mannheim is correct that the counter-revolutionaries, aristocratic convoys do come up with an ideology. It's, a, it's an entire worldview <clears throat> based on a defense of an ordered society uh, led by landed gentry <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, a one, one that values tradition as the basis of a good social order. <clears throat> um, now, the, argue, the argument that is made by um, made by Huntington repeats the position of Lewis Hartz <clears throat> that America has a liberal tradition, basically a Lockean tradition, a kind of social contract understanding of government, and European conservatism just doesn't fit the American model. And uh, uh, Huntington argues that aristocratic conservatism is the least viable form of conservatism, and we might as well forget about it. <clears throat> um, Mm. My, my argument is, is the opposite, if you, if you remember. Aristocratic right. conservatism is the real conservatism. <laughs> um, the, uh, the second conservatism that he presents is a conservatism based on value, value conservatism, which, you know, you and I have argued against for years, right? We, we yeah. don't believe in value conservatism. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> value conservati- conservatives will, uh, will, 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 will maintain that their uh, worldview is based on values that never lose their validity and are always good values. And it makes no difference what's happening politically. Um, Those are are the values that count. And as long as we rally to those values, we're conservatives. Right. The, uh, The third type discussed by Huntington is that conservatives are the ones defending the status quo mm-hmm. against those who are challenging it. Mm-hmm. That, of course, is very problematic for me since using that standard, I have to say that the woke leftists are the conservatives and, and we are the leftists, I suppose, because we're challenging them. Because mm-hmm. they're defending the status quo and very often counter-revolutionaries are the ones, you know, challenging a leftist status quo so that that doesn't work although i think hunting is right that all true conservatism is agonistic it, it's it's part of a dialectic or struggle right against the other side it just it just doesn't come along right um there, there has to be a challenge and a struggle from which conservatism emerges uh, mm-hmm. so uh 
my own definition, as you know, is historicist and conflictual. So, right. um, it's, it's the product of actual power centers conflicting over the course of a his, historical right. timeline. Right. But, but I, I think the truest form of conservatism is the one that Burke represents. Mm -hmm. Right. And the uh, the continental counter-revolutionaries. Right. Um, because they are arguing for an ordered hierarchical society, right? Um, and accept, you know, accept inequality as being good as part of the uh, the nature of the world, uh, necessary for, you know, necessary for social, social orders, they understand it. Uh, my argument is you don't have to agree with these people, but they, but they are they are the uh, they are the template of conservatism. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the form of conservatism that I find the uh, uh, the most disreputable is value conservatism. Mm -hmm. Because we see we see what's happening in the United States. You know, if you uh, if you have a value, depending on what value the conservative movement decides, the so-called conservative decides to validate at a particular point that makes you conservative right right so i mean we could move from traditional marriage to gay marriage you could say gay marriage is still marriage so it's a value you hold that position that you then become a conservative mm -hmm. we've now reached the point where uh, at which you can be a uh, a transgender who votes republican and that makes you a conservative mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, the, the only way you have conservatism is within an historical context. And when you have classes and all these other things that existed. Now, if you notice, I also distinguish conservatism from the right. <clears throat> I think conservatism is historically based. You know, it comes along at a particular time, in particular circumstances, and it calls forth a reaction <clears throat> which gives birth to conservatism. Mm -hmm. um, the right is not really dependent to the same extent on a particular historical circumstance, other than the fact that it's combating the left. Right. That the right by its nature um, is a reaction against the left. Mm -hmm. And that can come along, you know, whenever, whenever there's a reaction against the left. But I think at the same time, it must represent right as the right also has principles which are derivative from conservatism. <clears throat> and uh, or certainly a worldview, and the rightist worldview, like the conservative worldview, is based on the acceptance of hierarchy and particularity. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I said this a few years ago, it was attacked by Jacob Siegel and Tablet as some kind of neo-fascist or Nazi or something, <clears throat> because I do not accept natural equality or whatever you have to accept, human rights. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm just defining what I think is the nature of the right. Mm -hmm. The left, by contrast, is universalist, believes in equality, and has a constructivist view of society. You know, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, many people would, you know, would identify with one position, others would identify with the other position. I am not even making a value judgment. I think for the right to be the right, it has to favor particularity and hierarchy. Right. So, in, in other words, um, you know, the right and the conservative could be seen as, as um, the same thing in Burke's time. But today, you know, the, the defenders of the establishment, the, the conservatives of, of today um, are basically at war with the right. Yeah, but I would go beyond that. I, I sort of like looking at the populist right and they do defend particularity, but there isn't much hierarchy there, is there? Right. Exactly. Right. I know. But they are the right. 
you know, uh, because they, they, they do, they are def- fighting against the left and they do defend particularity. Mm-hmm. And I think they also defend the order of the family, the traditional family, which, you know, I mean, they, they, they think men are men, women are women, children are children. They do accept the hierarchy of the traditional uh, nuclear family, whatever hierarchy exists there. I mean, I wouldn't expect them to be 18th century aristocrats. Um, but there is at least an implicit notion uh, of uh, of order and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And they also defend community. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure if I have to address the national conservatives again, so we'll say, you know, aren't we conservative? <laughs> and my answer is that they are the right. You know, they do, they, I think they do represent a legitimate right, but I wouldn't go as far as describing them as authentic conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because I, I, I there isn't the historical situation which called forth conservatism, you know, the time of the French Revolution, right? Uh, or other times when you have a, you know, when you have, let's say, uh, aristocrats or traditional ruling class being challenged and reacting against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they had considered normal and ordinary is suddenly under attack. Um, uh, and I, I would recognize the southern landed uh, class, the, the planter class, as an aristocracy. <clears throat> I think the uh, the Confederacy is a conservative reaction in some ways to mm-hmm. to the Union. Um, I think the uh, the high Federalists in New England are genuine conservatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are defending their own hierarchical, particularistic society. Yeah, and they're against the French Revolution. They're violently against the French Revolution. That's why it's it's ridiculous when people like Victor Davis Hanson will will draw parallels between today's BLM and the Confederacy. <laughs> well, he's not a conservative of any kind. He's not he's not really on the right. Yeah. Uh, except by accident. <laughs> he's, right. he's accidentally associated with the right. <laughs> right. Let me ask you about um, Russell Kirk, because when you read his writings, he seems to be oh. a defender of of a pre-modern Europe, you know, and the mm-hmm. old hierarchy. He describes himself as a gothic in his uh, demeanor not really interested in the rationalism and yet at the same time wouldn't you say that he's one of the founders of principles-based conservatism he's both you're absolutely right i mean that's why in my article that he becomes you know of necessity maybe financial necessity Mm -hmm. a defender of this values conservatism Mm -hmm. and even changes his six canons of conservatism and the conservative mind you know to make it fit the changing nature of the republican party (laughs) Um, um, But I I don't think that's the essential Kirk. I mean, I think there's uh, (coughs) a Kirk who's sort of driven by, uh, you know, his own socioeconomic position, his concern with his family, um, who's sort of of looking for a a niche within within conservatism incorporated, who says these things. (coughs) But if you look at the first edition of The Conservative Mind, it is a very conservative work. I mean, he tells you that there's a conservative route in the United States, but then they changed the title because Henry Regnery Sr., who was his advisor and Rander, the founder of Regnery, the original Regnery, mm-hmm. which was a paleoconservative publishing house back then, <clears throat> um, uh, Henry Regnery says, you know, Russell, we can't have this title because we have to, you know, say something optimistic. <laughs> so. Uh, Henry Rettnery was a great fan of German philosophy. He was a German. He loved, he loved everything German. So, you know, this becomes the conservative Geist, the conservative spirit or mind, right? This is German translation. It's 
almost taken out of Hegel. <coughs> um, uh, Hegel is the phenomenal Legidus Geistes. Mm -hmm. So here you have the here you have the conservative mind, <clears throat> but if you read it, I mean, when he discusses Burke and the, the, the opening chapter is almost as lament; it's a dirge for the disappearance of conservatism. <clears throat> uh, I think he's right to include both John Adams and John C. Calhoun as American conservatives. They both were. Yeah, they came from different regions, <clears throat> and I know that Southern conservatives don't like New England Federalists. Uh, I like both. I, mean, I think both are fine. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I, I am really ecumenical about the, my conservatism. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I, I think Kirk does look for a genuine conservative tradition in America. <clears throat> Do you think that um, a genuine conservative tradition, an aristocratic conservatism, did it um, die basically in the mid-19th century or was it ever here? <clears throat> well, I, 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 think, I think for a while... There were conservatives even after the American Revolution in power in various parts of the United States. <clears throat> I mean, you know, people have got the frontier, but, but where you have a set, settled uh, a cities, there's very much of a hierarchy. There is, a, there is, you know, a kind of patrician class in places like Philadelphia and Boston and New York. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, I mean, these are hardly uh, political, social egalitarians who are running these places. And there was, particularly among the Federalists, there was a real outcry against the Federal French Revolution. Right. Uh, a yeah. voice by Alexander Hamilton and George Washington's cabinet. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is the point that you make against Hart because he argues that we don't have any conservative tradition here, and you say that we we oh. actually do. There, there were rev there were radicals here. There were the Thomas Paines sure. of the world that were here. Um, so. Do you think you could put your finger on whether the, the American Revolution was overall conservative or overall leftist, or was it just too much of a mixed bag? Well, I, I think being, being a revolution against, against the English political establishment and against the monarchy, it was, it was, it was one might say, destined to have uh, more liberal ramifications, mm -hmm. right? But uh, despite that, I think there was an entrenched... Uh, aristocracy, uh, an aristocracy without necessarily titles in the United States, you know, if you look around. <clears throat> and America is very much of a class society. Um, and the, well, I'd say the ruling class, <clears throat> particularly in the cities along the eastern seaboard, <clears throat> are very much concerned about, uh, about revolution. Mm -hmm. Real revolution, they do not see the American Revolution this way. And if you notice, <clears throat> as soon as the revolution is over, people like Hamilton decide you know, maybe we need a monarchy. Maybe George Washington will be a monarch or president for life. <clears throat> um, and uh, maybe we need a national church, <clears throat> which is to be the which is to be the Anglican Church, which is now the Episcopal Church, right in the United States. <clears throat> so, I mean, these people were not egalitarians by any stretch of the imagination. Um, now, there were changes in the country, <clears throat> um, population growth. <laughs> movement into frontier areas, which did have an egalitarian effect. In the mm -hmm. end. I mean, the country will change. <clears throat> but to say that there was no conservative tradition, uh, I think is an absurd overstatement. Is there any conservative, uh, you know, aristocratic conservative tradition identifiable in the 20th century? In, in the where? In the 20th century. <clears throat> well, I, I, think, I think you have the remnants of, of, of an aristocracy. 
your mm -hmm. patrician classes. They still have tremendous social and political influence into the 20th century. Uh, something which um, Digny Baltzell, for instance, who comes from an old Philadelphia, mainline Philadelphia family, points out. Uh, I mean, America is very much of a class society, even though there are no officially established classes. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, the people went to Yale, Harvard. Miss I mean, you, you read about the, the family of the um, uh, of, of the Cabots um, or um, and any any of these other people who have tremendous influence, you know, in, in the United States um, well, well, well into the 20th century. Um, the Lowell's, um, you know, they, they, they're they not only social snobs, they very have a very strong class sense. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, if you were an Irish Catholic living in Boston in 1900, you would be excluded from just about everything <laughs> because the, the, same, the same people were in charge. And, of course, the Lodge family, you know, go on for generations. The Adams family, uh, <clears throat> there were lots of those families. And there are many of those first families of the South yeah, uh, who have influenced well into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, people know that you've been influenced by, by Hobbes. Uh, how does, how does the thinking of Hobbes uh, weigh into this equation? Do you think that there, I mean, obviously he was a conservative of his time, but obviously the right wing is, is not in power anymore. Um, to what extent is Hobbes and his way of thinking relevant? Well, I, I know Hobbes is a thinker. Who would appeal to the right but not to conservatives? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I mean, uh, Robert Nisbet and Russell Kirk, both of whom defend conservatism, are absolutely appalled by Hobbes. I think he's terrible. Why would you ever read anybody like that? I mean, they like French counter revolutionaries, Burke, and these are their people. Um, <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> I would argue that the, um, the implications of Hobbes are very anti democratic very elitist <clears throat> mm -hmm. and uh you know he's talking like carl schmidt he's talking about a situation in which order has broken down right what do you do at this point <clears throat> and his solution is not more democracy in other words you know, in other you know, words it's, it's, it's the need for a sovereign yeah hobbes is not someone you want to appeal to if you're trying to create some ideal hobbes mm -hmm. is someone to appeal to if you want to properly understand real uh, politique exactly exactly yeah and you know he, he sort of he sort of comes comes out of, comes out of this this uh, tradition in, in the 17th century uh, of talking about you know the the breakdown of order um, how do you restore it living in an age of religious wars uh, uh, the the struggles um, uh, or the birth pangs of nation states the development of nation states at this time <clears throat> and he's telling you how do you avoid violent death. And how do you have create some restore some semblance of order? Mm -hmm. um, now I, I know there is a tendency to read Hobbes as um, uh, going back to Ferdinand Penny's as the first <clears throat> the first liberal, <clears throat> somebody with a materialist worldview, uh, a nominalist uh, uh, who rejects the entire medieval Christian synthesis and so forth. <clears throat> um, uh, look at looking at Hobbes from the 21st century. He certainly looks like uh, a man of the right to me, because yeah. uh, he really comes at it. Really comes at the beginning of the sort of scientific revolution, uh, what what the um, the Straussians call political modernity. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and you know, in, in, in some ways, I, I agree with Trevor Roper, um, <clears throat> English historian, and others who sort of see him as the last medieval schoolman. There's, there's something almost medieval about him. Right. About, about Hobbes. Um, that, he, you know, he's, he's, he is very much concerned with maintaining order and sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, he is not concerned about democracy. Um, <clears throat> he is quite happy to have, you know, um, uh, a, 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 a state religion as long as it is under the control of the sovereign. So, that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't go back to the situation of Henry II of England or uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the papal investiture, the investiture controversy in Germany later with Henry IV. Uh, uh, he's, he's not against the state religion. He doesn't, he doesn't particularly like, like religious dissent. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that the, the, the church has to be under the control of, of the monarch. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because people don't really understand that about Hobbes. You know, they they treat him as someone who's <clears throat> advocating for modernity. But, you know, in my reading of Hobbes, he's someone who recognizes that things have already taken place and it's up to the sovereign to mm -hmm. respond to those things uh, in a realistic way, not not an idealistic way. And that's kind of the, the, the that's the contribution that Hobbes makes today um, because our society has broken down. We are in disorder. Yeah, Locke uh, was very often seen as somebody influenced by Hobbes, but also uh, the antithesis of Hobbes because he wants, I don't know, individual freedom and uh, protection of property and so forth. Um, he's much more optimistic. Yeah. You know, he, he actually believes that people can come together in a social contract and put together a government that's, that's going to work for them. Uh, it is possible to preserve all these freedoms mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> that you have in the state of nature. There must be, there may be some modification once you've created, you know, the social contract and move into civil society. Mm -hmm. but, but Hobbes seems to be much more Augustinian. Mm -hmm. I mean, human nature is pretty bad. And nobody describes human nature. You know, you think you're reading St. Augustine or John Calvin. I mean, it is not, it does not have a pretty view of, you know, of, of uh, how human beings are put together. Yeah. My last question, um, do you think like um, Hegel and people like that, um, what makes them right-wing or conservative? <clears throat> well, the, the, I, I think one can argue there is a conservative aspect to Hegel's thought um, because his understanding, um, his understanding of a, of a synthesis uh, is is not uh, in philosophy or synthesis in in, in history uh, is not a destruction of what comes before. It is the integration of past and present. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so he really has a cumulative view of history, in, in which he will, in which he goes out of his way to defend earlier periods and cer certainly the glossators who come and write, you know, and uh, write the Suzettes uh, and the Anhang and so forth for Hegel, <clears throat> like Edward Gantz very definitely have this view that we, that we cannot, we are not going to abolish the past. The past must become integrated into the present. Uh, and of, of course, he was, uh, he was politically quite conservative. He, he wrote against the English um, Reform Act of 1832. Mm -hmm. uh, before it was passed, because he died in 1831, but it was being considered in 1830, he wrote against it. <clears throat> so, um, and, you know, his, he has a corporate view of the state. Right. That the state incorporates, you know, the state ha is, is made up of, of these, these corporate entities, you know, which have power. 
I mean, he does not believe in dictatorial government <clears throat> when he speaks, you know, of, of um, the, the state as the ethical will of the world spirit. Is, what, what, he, what he means is a state which is itself synthetic, mm-hmm. right, because it's, it's made up of all these elements, some of which go back to the Middle Ages. <clears throat> um, so that, although he very definitely has a view of progress, which is a self-realization of spirit or absolute consciousness, this takes place um, uh, as an accumulation of past and present. Yeah. It's it's interesting because, you know, Hegel to me seems like someone who is much more optimistic than perhaps today's conservatives ought to be. Oh, yes, he is. And he is sort of, he's a liberal for his age, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he, do, he does... He does believe in something like a constitutional monarchy, right? Um, so, so in, in that sense, he's sort of he's sort of a liberal by Prussian standards of 1830. You know? Yeah, not necessarily by um, by by the standards of John Dewey or uh, Hubert Humphrey, let alone the standards of I can't say of Joe Biden because he's he's not he's uh, he's not even sentient anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> totally hey. But have you seen, speaking of speaking of senile, have you seen some of Fetterman's comments recently on immigration? Yes, he said, I'm, I'm going to vote for this guy next time. <laughs> Sounds he, fine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now that he's recovered from his brain injury. Yeah, he's like <laughs> to the so right good. of Mitt Romney now. Yeah, he's a he's he's it's it's interesting. People have made the comment that like as you as you recover from brain damage, you know, suddenly you become more right wing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, Paul, thank you for your time. The Texas thing is interesting. It'll be uh, curi- I'm curious to see what's going to happen over the next couple of months, especially because we're butting up to the election here. But um, we'll do this again. Maybe we'll get an update on Texas and cover whatever your next essay is. Excuse me. I didn't hear you. We're going to cover your next essay in a few weeks. Does that well, sound good? Thank you. What is the next essay that you intend to cover? I haven't decided yet. What are you going to write about? I don't know. I have to think about it. I'm writing on Germany. I wrote a long essay for the March issue of Chronicles on Germany. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the the absolutely unscrupulous attempts to get rid of the AfD, oh. which is not a particularly right-wing party. It's just the only non-woke, non-leftist party that the yeah. Germans have left. I was going to ask you about that, too. Um, is it over the immigration issue? What's what's going on there with the what issue? Immigration, aren't they? Aren't well, they? well, you're not supposed to say you're against immigration, right. although that you know now they're going after the AfD, claiming that they had a Geheimtreffen, a secret meeting um, in the Lanesetz, uh, which is near Potsdam, uh, which is also near Wannsee, where they had the Nazi meeting in 1942. Mm-hmm. And this is the meeting of the Alternative for Deutschland, which aims at the um, uh, getting rid of getting rid of all these. Um, uh, but the Germans say the the Ab- the Abschiebung des the Einwanderer, kicking them all out. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> there's no basis for it. They never held such a meeting. <laughs> there was a meeting to discuss a book by Martin Zellner called uh, uh, Regime Wechsel von Rechts. But that is not, um, uh, they were not calling for uh, getting rid of everybody, of all immigrants in Germany. It never happened. <coughs> but they're, they're using this to get rid of the AfD, claiming that they're a hate group and mention find, they're enemies of the human race. And the American 
conservative movement uh, has has uh, backed up the German left. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the, the the Wall Street Journal, of uh, Fox News, the New York Post, all claimed that there was a meeting of the AfD in which they discussed plans to deport all German immigrants. Mm-hmm. It never took place. Are they are they <laughs> scared that the AfD is attracting more people? Well, no, I I, th- I think the the American neoconservative conservative establishment just hate Germans. But they hate they hate European nationalists, French nationalists. They don't mind the Brits because they think you can control them <laughs> a, a bit better. But but they they hate they hate the Germans because of the Nazis. Right. You know, <clears throat> and you say, well, the right wing, oh, you know, these Nazis are coming. This this never happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know, they're all they're all backing to the hilt. The uh, the the, uh, the the left wing block there, the um, the block and that are now in power. Well, that's an interesting topic to um, to focus on as well, because all throughout Europe, mm-hmm. you know, with the immigrate, they're having the same immigration problems over there too. So, of course, you know, the right wing is going to radicalize, perhaps. Actually, yeah, but here at least we have the Republican Party that's now opposed to it. <laughs> For <laughs> and, now, and, and yeah. In Germany, anyone who comes out against it is declared to be a fascist. Right. <clears throat> you lose your job. <clears throat> They might end up throwing you in prison. They'll, they'll incite mobs against you and your house and everything. I mean, it's in Germany, it's really a terrible situation. Much worse than anything here. Germany's Germany's the worst European country. Yeah. For that. So, anyways, Paul, um, that's enough for today. Thank you for talking with me. 